You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about the people behind Jacobin Magazine's latest attempt to make themselves politically relevant. It's a new study of theirs called Trump's Kryptonite. Andrew and I will be critiquing a lot of the methods and conclusions of the study. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. And if you find yourself appreciating the podcast, please do not forget to subscribe, to like, to comment, and to write to us. We very much appreciate it. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about the study that comes out of the Jacobin crowd. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to talk about uh, some current events. We are recording this current events segment on the 6th of July. In recent weeks, the Supreme Court of the United States has dropped several major decisions that made headlines, and we are going to talk about some of those decisions and some of the possible ramifications and, and responses to those decisions. The main things we're going to cover are the, the Supreme Court slapping down the independent state legislature theory, the uh, Supreme Court overthrowing affirmative action in college admissions, and this bizarre fake case that was brought to the Supreme Court that uh, ended with the Supreme Court deciding that it was okay for companies to discriminate against LGBTQ customers. Why don't we start with the independent state legislature issue? This was one of the few things the Supreme Court got right. Maybe, but maybe we should briefly review what the case was about. Yeah, the slight majority of people in the United States reject the Republican Party, reject Trumpism and everything like this, and they can't win fair elections. So they have tried, as we know, insurrection, and they tried everything else to tr try to win elections in other ways. And one thing that they developed in uh, recent years is this scam, which they call a theory, independent state legislature theory, which says that state legislatures can conduct elections however they wish without any review by the courts even, and that supposedly this is a constitutional right granted the state legislatures, not like state courts, you know, not like anybody else, the governor, or this and that, just the legislatures. And this was a cherry-picked issue because of the Republican control of state legislatures in key swing states. So the idea would be you, you get an election and the Democrat wins, the majority of the voters in that state want Biden or whatever, and the electoral votes go to Biden. No, because the state legislature goes the other way and they can conduct elections however they want and nobody can say nothing about it. Okay, that was the quote theory. And court turned that down and said, basically, that's nuts. That's not the way the system works, that legislatures can just do whatever they want without review. And so that's like a two-edged sword in that case, because it smacks down the independent state legislature theory and it says they don't have total control, but it puts the, the control ultimately in the courts. And that means ultimately the Supreme Court. And we already know back from the year 2000, when there was uh, a president elected nine votes, he, he got five and the other guy got four. 
in uh, Bush versus Gore when they flipped uh, the Supreme Court flipped uh, Florida for Bush. So uh, giving the the court any role at all against the voters is uh, is, is horrible. But this independent state legislature theory was even worse, totally ridiculous. So the conservatives on the Supreme Court were split on this issue. We had Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch in favor of independent state legislature theory, and Barrett, Kavanaugh, and John Roberts against it. You hear all sorts of speculation about why some of the conservatives were against it. I don't even know if necessarily it matters. It seems unlikely that three of the conservatives just suddenly had some twinge of conscience and decided to vote for the rule of law in this one issue. Uh, I, I think it matters for understanding what is in store for us and the nature of what we need to do to fight back. Right. Um, my view, and based on what various people who know the law and have commented, is all six of them are slightly different flavors of the same thing. And it's maybe a matter of tactics, the differences between them. In other words, there's the letter rip faction, Alito and Thomas, etc. And then there's the go a little bit slower, carve out only what's possible, Roberts faction. I mean, I don't know who he's got with him, but he can swing some votes. It's not like any of them are really more moderate than the others. It's just a question of, of, of tactics, as, as, as far as I can tell. And I don't think that they give rat's ass about, excuse me, about the reputation of the court or the legitimacy of the court. Everything they've done is, is to trash precedent, to trash reason. It's very clear that it's all jurisprudence based on what we want the outcome to be. Make it up as it goes along. What I do think they care about is power. And they care about losing power. And that some of these decisions, especially the state uh, independent state legislature theory, that have not gone down so badly, they've seen the pushback, you know, and the mobilization against the Dobbs decision wiping out the, the right to abortion. And I think that they're worried about encroachments on their power. I think I think that the opposition to them has got to step up its game and realize that you, you have to force these people because they've got no morality. They've got no respect for truth. They've got no respect for reason. They've got no respect for precedent. They've got no respect for the Constitution. They have no respect for anybody, you know, in this country and our rights and that what they will listen to is being forced. I think that everybody has got to like just understand that this idea of an independent judiciary that calls balls and strikes and is above the politics, thats if that was ever true, it's no longer true. And, and you're not going to bring that back. Okay, What we've got is a, is a battle for the future of the United States and maybe the world. Well, in that light, maybe we should talk about the affirmative action case. Yeah, horrible, but expected. I mean, they, they've been trying that for how, how many how many decades have they ever since affirmative action got started? They've been trying this. Yeah, they overturned decades of precedent, and the day that the decision was handed down, we saw these lawsuits come out against schools like Harvard and Yale for their use of giving preferential treatment to alumni, so-called legacy admissions, claiming saying that, look, if you can't give preferential treatment for minority students, then you can't give it for, you know, wealthy, connected alumni students either. Yeah, but I think what we're going to see is 
another demonstration of how much logic matters to the court system and the Supreme Court. I think people should have already drawn the consequences of that. I mean, I don't expect this to go well. I think it's going to be a long, drawn-out fight. You know, my heart's with them. Yeah, it seems more like a screw-you lawsuit. Yeah, and I think I think it might be helpful for that. You know, if if you want to troll the Supreme Court and 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 all these people, go for it. I'm all I'm all for that. <laughs> you know, we weren't going to talk about the Dobbs decision and abortion, but this seems relevant because it's in the category of like responding to these Supreme Court decisions with creative countersuits, if you want to call them countersuits. I was just reading in the website electoralvote.com, I think it was last week, about several groups in different states that are suing states that have passed restrictive abortion laws, saying that the concept of life in those states' abortion laws is based on certain evangelical Christian sex beliefs about when life begins and that it violates the religious freedom of other groups like Jews or Muslims who have different beliefs about when life begins. I mean, that's very novel. I mean, I don't know how far they're going to get with that, but it's like, I think it's a great strategy. I'm curious to see how that, how that develops those kind of, yeah. Yeah, the Jews, the Jews might get somewhere because it's there in, in, in Jewish law. You'll be curious to see how that goes. If they really want to force their Christian religion on the whole world, well, what happens when they realize that most of the country is not evangelical Christians and they're discriminating against the religion of all these other people with their uh, laws? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, look, these people are very creative and they've shown creativity in like making up as they go along to say things are different when they're not. And they don't have to take any case anyway. So these gimmicks are good. They're good for trolling. They're good for convincing people who are not yet convinced that this is just a, a power grab by the right and that there's no reasoning with these people it's all about the exercise of power against us maybe not everybody's convinced of that not everybody wants to mobilize against that a lot of people don't want to mobilize the democratic party is putting its head directly in the sand and keeping it there so that that stuff is is good for this but you're not going to beat these people by logic and consistency and precedent Uh, that's 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 not the way it's going to go down yeah should we also briefly talk about this fake case fake colorado religious website discrimination designer so this, this web designer who apparently hadn't even started her web design business yet sued saying that um Uh, She should be able to discriminate against gay couples. She shouldn't have to make wedding websites for gay couples. Uh, No gay couple had actually asked her to make a website for them. She apparently fabricated a request from a gay couple. They tracked this guy down. He was like, I'm not even gay, and I've been married for 15 years. There's some guy named Stuart. They just put my name on this Supreme Court case, and I'm not even... This isn't even a real thing. Uh, But the Supreme Court decided, yes, this website designer should be allowed to discriminate, to refuse to work for a gay couple if she wants to, um, based on just completely fabricated case. I mean, this just really demonstrates like how, like you were saying, Andrew, the Supreme Court has no interest in like any doing things the right way of any resemblance of honesty. They're just willing to take a fake case and make a precedent out of it in order to advance an agenda. Yeah, this is a bit. This is a big thing in in, in U.S. law. You can, you're not supposed to be able to bring a case about the harm 
that hasn't occurred because it might in the future occur. You know, anybody who does that gets thrown out of court, right? I don't like these new people who've just moved next door because they might be loud. Well, they might be, but what have they done so far? Nothing will get the hell out of court, right? You can't do that, and, and, and but this is exactly what they did. Yeah, yeah, and, and that people know now that they can use the Supreme Court to advance their agenda. They don't need to wait. You know, conservatives want to bring things to the court in order to overturn precedents. They don't need to wait for some cause to occur. They can just like make something up, make a case for it. They can put fake, fake people into the actual case itself and bring it to the court and it could be successful. It's, it's really an affront and it's really an attempt to go against the, the, the import of the Constitution, which separates church and state. They're trying to break down those barriers again and again and again and have a Christian country here. People have got to get to the point where you say, okay, we had the right to abortion for 49 years. You take away that right. You have the right to make decisions that screw us over again and again and again, but you've had your turn. Now you don't have that right. We're getting rid of you people, okay? I mean, I don't know another legal system to design or whatever, but the point is that if they can take away our rights, we can take away their rights. Yeah, this is just going to keep happening. They're just going to keep taking away more rights until something happens. They're not. They're not stopping at Dobbs no. and, 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 and Supreme and Court. Not, and, and something is not just going to happen without mobilization that doesn't stop until we make it happen. And it's not going to happen unless everybody gets their head on straight and realizes there's no clever maneuvering and there's no people seeing the light and no moderation. They are what they are. Well, we'll have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation about Jacobin's new study called Trump's Kryptonite. Okay, today is the 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, Andrew. Happy 4th of July, Brendan. Very patriotic celebration. Yeah. Well, fittingly, we'll be doing one of America's favorite pastimes, talking about political surveys and statistics today. We're going to be talking about a piece that has been getting a little bit of attention that is coming out of the Jacobin Mayu. It's a study by the Center for Working Class Politics. It's titled Trump's Kryptonite. How Progressives Can Win Back the Working Class. This study was, um, it got written up in the New York Times, promoted heavily, it seems like, by Jacobin Magazine, and we've seen it talked about in some other news outlets. Um, the study for Center for Working Class Politics is a newish uh, research institute or think tank, very closely affiliated with Jacobin. I think it's run by like the Jacobin, the Jacobin Foundation. And they've begun producing research aimed at convincing uh, the Democratic Party to adopt more economic populist positions. That seems to be like the, the goal of this institute. And they have a new study out called Trump's Kryptonite, How Progressives Can Win Back the Working Class. And they claim that this study points a way forward for left populism to win back the working class vote from Trump, uh, from the Republican Party. So we're going to critique aspects of the study and ask like how Jacobin got to this place where they're trying to maintain some kind of relevancy by running focus groups and producing studies to give unsolicited advice to the Democratic Party about what kind of messaging works to build a, dem the dem a democratic base? Yeah, the Democratic Party. 
Democratic Party shills. Remember when we used to hear about that? (laughs) But I have a question before we get into the weeds. I know Superman and all this. I don't get the metaphor. Trump's kryptonite. What, what is that about? Well, the only thing that can defeat Trump, apparently, is left economic populism. Oh, okay. So it's like garlic yeah. for a v- vampire. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If that's what they're trying to see, they, they don't say it anywhere in the study. No, they don't. If they're trying to imply that by that headline, that's that's really something, because the, the results don't show that. So basically, here's the premise of... The Trump's kryptonite study. The Democrats have been losing the working class vote. But wait a minute, Jacobin, we're socialists and socialists know how to organize the working class. We know that you can motivate the working class by advancing redistributionist economic programs. And we socialists even have this new study that shows how you can win working class support in elections by running candidates who are teachers or construction workers who run on a job guarantee program and use anti-elitist language. That's like the basic conclusion of the study. You run candidates who are teachers or construction workers. They say, we're going to guarantee jobs, and we are against all the elites who are screwing over the people. Uh, It's a survey of swing voters, and that surveys voter preferences for economic populist rhetoric and economic populist proposal. They tried all these different types of rhetoric. They tried all these different types of economic populist proposals. And the, the only economic populist proposal that really had any traction, they claim, is job guarantee programs. And most successful economic populist rhetoric was anti-elitist you know, populist rhetoric. Yeah, let, let me come in and try to be more precise about who they surveyed, because it, it, it kind of does matter. So they say about 40% of the population is either like strong Democratic voters or strong Republican voters. We're not going to deal with them. So they're dealing with the remaining 60% of the population. Now, of that remaining 60% of the population, you got people who weakly identify with the Democratic Party or who say that they're independent, but they vote Democratic. And you get the same thing on the Republican side, weakly identify with the Republicans or independent, but they vote Republicans. So you got about 37% of their sample are these people in the weak Democratic camp, and you got 35% of their sample in the weak Republican camp. Okay, that leaves 28%, which is your true independence. It's about 10% of the whole population, but it's about 28% of the sample are true independents. In other words, your non-voters, your swing voters, the, the other 70-some percent of the people that they're surveying are kind of like reliable votes in the D column or the R column. So why, why did they do this? They're trying to get at swing voters. They're not trying to look at everybody, but over 70% of their sample is people who mostly, you know, or always vote Democratic or Republican. I I think it's because it's a sample size problem. They had to get a big enough sample, so they threw in a lot of people they don't really care about in order to get the other remaining 28%. That's really kind of dicey when you're talking about 1,650 people total that they surveyed. You're looking at fewer than 500 true independents. Well, I think one of the, th- the themes that will come up and as we talk about the study is that there's a certain confidence in, in presented in the, the summary of the study. But as you read through it, the, the confidence and even like the meager proposals that they make are is so watered down by caveats. As you read through the study, you realize there's, there's barely anything here that would be useful for anyone running a candidate in the next election, especially nothing that would be like out of the new or, or different than any other like political survey that 
candidates are looking for. But maybe we should talk about just just some background about like how Jacobin got to this position where this is like a big priority for the Jacobin Foundation, for Bhaskar Sunkar, who's one of the four directors of the Center for Working Class Politics and also like the leading intellectual of Jacobin. You know, how did they get to this point? Jacobin has for a long time argued for privileging economic populism in order to build a broad base of working class support. They've critiqued the Democratic Party as neoliberal and elitist, and they've backed candidates like Bernie Sanders and AOC, who've adopted left economic positions and postures. They've advocated subsuming cultural and social issues to the larger goal of advancing this economic populism. And and they wrap it all with a lot of rhetoric about socialism and Marx and all that stuff. Jacobin has had a number of major setbacks, theoretically, politically, in recent years. There, of course, was the failure of both of Bernie Sanders' primary campaigns, which seemed to suggest that his populism had limited appeal. The Democratic victories in 2020 and 2022 seem to be largely about voters reacting against Trumpism, uh, voting against the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which outlawed, which you know, which uh, took away the right to an abortion, indicating that these kind of social issues, if you want to just distinguish them from economic issues, are like the primary battleground upon which politics is happening today in America. Voters increasingly think of themselves in terms of these social issues, in terms of a tribal identification with parties, even when they may like an isolated economic proposal in a survey. And we've seen this again and again, where progressive economic populists, you know, they say, oh, look, we took a survey, people like X economic populist proposal. And then they extrapolate from that and and think that that is going to be strong enough to determine their behavior in in an election. And it, it rarely does. You might find a Trump voter who likes the idea of a job guarantee program or something, uh, but that doesn't mean they're going to vote for a Democrat, you know. So some of the most significant social movements of recent years, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, these have been massive and transformative movements, despite having nothing to do with the signature economic proposals that people and the Jacobin Mayu thought were going to motivate masses of people. So this suggests that there are major problems with the analysis behind this sort of social democratic thinking, which predicted that proposals like single-payer health care or student loan forgiveness would be the way to build a large base of support. Yeah, the student loan thing, that was a real miscalculation because in terms of uh, political popularity, it's the other way, right? It's not, it's not popular at all among the people who haven't gone to college. Right, right. And then we have the phenomena of, of Biden, who is like a mainstream Democrat, referred to as a neoliberal by Jacobin and, and the primary, right, who has himself initiated a very ambitious economic program with the Inflation Reduction Act. And this leads us to ask, like, if centrist Dems like Biden, who are supposedly so awful, are fine with this sort of economic intervention, like, why do we need so-called socialists like the Jacobinites? We also have the phenomenon of some Republicans who are advancing economic populist ideas. You have there's the organization called American Compass, which is a think tank for common good Republicans. They have people like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley who count themselves as common good Republicans, and they are argue for a place for government intervention in the economy to make the lives of working class Americans better and thereby help sure up the working class support for the GOP. So in such an environment, we're left to ask, like, what is the role for Jacobin? What are they trying to do with their politics? 
Yeah, and you got the American Compass. Okay, so that's kind of like a Mitt Romney-style Republican think tank project, but also like mainstream kind of Clinton Democrat stuff too. You got this very well-known strategist, Roy Teixeira, and just a few days ago, he published a study, and now he's working for, of all people, the American Enterprise Institute, which is, you know, it's got people of various stripes, but it's a, it's a right-leaning think tank. And I tell you, reading Teixeira's thing reminded me of this this kryptonite thing, because both are featuring Fetterman. What is the the secret sauce? You know, what what is Fetterman's superpower beyond just dressing like a slob? Teixeira concludes that there's a quote chunk of rural white working class voters that will indeed support a Democrat with the right aesthetic and messaging. So it sounded to me like I was reading the same thing all over again. So this was just a few days ago. So you got Mitt Romney-style Republicans. You got the mainstream Democratic strategists who are concerned about the Democrats not getting people who don't go to college to vote for them. You got the, the Jacobinites. It's the same thing, no matter how they think of their politics and ideology. They're, they're all saying the same thing. And then we have this other problem for the the Jacobin line, which is that a lot of studies of the rightward drift of white working class voters have suggested that their orientation to politics is not driven by economic grievance, but instead by identification with authoritarian and racist ideas. Alan Abramovich, who we've mentioned before on this podcast, he wrote recently writing about this drift of white working class voters to the GOP. He wrote, quote, this class divide appears to have little or nothing to do with economic self-interest and everything to do with diverging racial attitudes of these two groups. These findings indicate that efforts by Democratic leaders to win back the support of white working class voters who have been voting for Republican candidates in recent years by appealing to their economic interests or shifting to the right on issues like immigration and gay rights are unlikely to bear much fruit, close quote. So these setbacks have not caused a major rethink of Jacobin's basic orientation to politics. Rather, they've doubled down on their populist approach with a don't mourn organize mentality. However, this latest work from the Center for Working Class Politics suggests that this grand socialist vision of Jacobin has been really narrowed, distilled, watered down, reduced, whatever you want to call it, to the much more banal task of suggesting messaging and policy to the Democratic Party. A few years ago, it was all about the Bernie revolution. And now it seems to be about how to run more Tim Ryans. Yeah. Let me, let me say about Alan Abramowitz. You, you're absolutely correct. We, we have talked about him a few months ago. Episode came out on March 31. Uh, episode 90, we did a current events segment on a new study of his that came to basically the same conclusion as the one that you uh, quoted from a couple of years ago. Racism, not economic stress, is what has driven whites without college degrees into the arms of the Republican Party. I mean, this doesn't come as a surprise. Study after study has shown basically the same thing. I've done a couple of such studies, and this is all really well known. So you say that the, the, the Jacobin people have doubled down on their populist approach with the don't mourn organize mentality. But I mean, Joe Hill, wobbly organizer, 
is turning over in his grave. <laughs> yeah. Joe Hill was don't mourn organize, right? When they murdered him, that's what he said to people. Don't mourn my death, go organize. This is like, don't mourn, tell other people how to message. It doesn't sound too good on a, a bumper yeah. sticker, but yeah. it's not, it, it, you're not organizing. This is not organizing. It's not even suggesting how people organize it. It's suggesting what kind of like commercials to, to air and, and, and what kind of sound bites to, to produce. So you can win elections. This is a, it has nothing to do with on-the-ground on kind of organizing at all, even 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 on-the-ground party organizing. It's not. It, it's nothing like that. It's all it's all top-down rhetoric, messaging. What kind of candidates appeal to people? What soundbite this? And ugh, it's really something. Yeah. yeah. So we wanted to go through some of the takeaways from the report and and some of the non-takeaways from the, their report, but. First, I just wanted to clarify, maybe you can clarify this, Andrew. This, so the study so starts with this premise that the Democrats have been losing working class support. They don't actually come out and say that we're just talking about the white working class, but that's often the way the problem is portrayed. Have Democrats been losing other de- demographics of the working class, or is it just the white working class voters? Okay, well, I want to say in a bit something about this concept of working class. Yeah, that's also complicated. It's another, it's another yeah. issue. But assuming that we're going to call people who don't have four-year college degrees working class, the answer is basically we're talking about whites. We're not talking about blacks. And we are, to some extent, in some places, talking about some Hispanic voters. And maybe, maybe a slight shift uh, to the Republicans among Asian voters, although that's, that's kind of hard to tell. The, the only group that seems to be not white, non-college educated, that is moving towards the Republicans the only one besides that might be some part of the Hispanic or, or Latino community. Blacks, not really. What happened with, with black voters, the reason it kind of looks like that is you start comparing the results to 2008, 2012. Well, you got Obama in 2008 and 2012. And so percentage of the, the, the black vote that has gone to the Democrats since then has reverted back towards the mean, back towards where it was. But it's we're still talking about uh, well over 85% or so of that. The, the Democratic percentage among Latinos and, and, and Asian voters has never been that high, but it's fairly consistent. If there's a sizable shift at all, it seems to be among some sections of the Latino community. But we're talking about a couple of percentage points. We're talking about rather than seventy percent of the vote uh, among Latinos going Democratic. We're talking about you know sixty six percent, sixty seven percent going Democratic. Okay, these are modest shifts, but in you know the current uh, U.S. political environment where everything is a nail biter, you just need eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes. Just got to find them, which is one more than we have. In that kind of a situation, these these little things, little shifts matter. Now, there I should say there are dem- other demographic shifts, but they're all related to white people without college degrees, like rural voters. Rural voters have been moving more Republican, but it's because, you know, so many of them are white people without without college degrees. Well, maybe we should also touch on this issue of like how the working class is defined as well. Yeah, um, because apparently there was a previous study that the Center for Working Class Politics put out that used 
education as a proxy for class, which is we see a lot nowadays. But they say this study is using some kind of occupational coding system that sorts people into classes based on their occupations. I don't know if you have thoughts about that, Andrew, but I even just... I'm not always sure what people mean by working class because you can define it different ways. And if it's just like used as a demographic category and not specifically about like relationship to the mode of production, is it just kind of trying to predict people's potential behaviors, you know, based on their income or based on the type of work they do or whether or not they own means of production or not? I'm not always clear what how the category is being used. Okay. I, th- I think actually in this study, they... They employ at various points two different definitions of working class, one based on occupation and one based on this educational attainment. And what happened, as I understand it, is statistics in politics, you want to get information on the demographics of the voters, who they are, uh, gender, uh, income, race, and so forth. It's generally hard to get very good information on class. So what they do get is uh, educational attainment. What's your highest uh, degree? How many years did you do this and so forth? So they got those. And as a shorthand, the people, the political scientists and the pollsters began referring to this group of people who don't have at least a four-year college degree, began to call them working class. And then, especially in 2016, with Trump getting electoral college victory and the large support he was getting from these non-college voters, this kind of entered like the, the mainstream political discourse. Working class voters in this term, white working class. And it's just a shorthand, however, for people without four-year college degrees when you talk about the statistics related to this. It's very unusual to do what they've tried to do in this study, which is actually get measures of occupational uh, status. But the term white working class is, is just a bad term because it, 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 it can sound like the working class is white. Working class. Oh, white. It, that's that's misleading. But also it's like once you start to talk about white working class, it, it's there's an ideological punch that that packs, which is, ah, the working class is inherently divided by race. And not only because of racial attitudes, white workers have certain sets of interests, the, the black workers and so forth have other interests. And I don't think that that's true. I mean, the, the attitudes are, are certainly different. But even from a statistical vantage point, when you say educational attainment is measuring class, you got a lot of business people who didn't go to college for four years. And you got a lot of workers, proletarians who have at least four-year college degrees. You got uh, teachers, you got healthcare workers, nurses, and so forth. You got millions upon millions of sales workers and office workers who have gone to college for, for four years. A few years ago, I, I looked at this. In the U.S., there were 52 million uh, employees in the U.S. who did have four-year college degrees. Uh, 11.4 million of them were teachers or healthcare workers. Okay, so more than a fifth of the people with four-year college de- degrees were either teachers or, or healthcare workers, you know, not including doctors and dentists and school administrators. Another nine million people uh, with four-year college degrees were sales or office workers. 
those groups together is already 20 million out of the 52 million people with, with four-year college degrees. So it, the, the match between educational attainment and what class they're in with respect to the relationship to the means of production, there, there's some kind of loose fit, but it's it's just a loose fit between those two different things. So just to kind of put it in front of the listeners so they can understand how this study was framed, they're like market testing populist rhetoric, anti-elitist rhetoric, and they're also market testing different policy proposals uh, and seeing, you know, what combinations of rhetoric and proposals move potential voters the most. They're also comparing rhetoric and policies around economic issues with those around social issues. So they draw this very stark line between social and economic issues, issues like immigration, abortion, Gun control, those are all considered social issues, while narrowly redistributionist economic things are considered economic. The study suggests that messaging and policy around these social issues just are going to divide these swing voters and are not useful, but messaging around this job guarantee program is going to like unite these working class voters. For me, when I see abortion taken out of the economic category and treated solely as like a cultural distraction, uh, alarms go off. Exactly. They even have a footnote where they say, oh, yeah, we realize that everything we're saying is hot air in terms of the split between economic and social. But you know what we mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're sort of stubbornly sticking to the Jackman party line, which is socialists do redistributionist economic policies. And anything else is like considered a social issue, not an economic issue. And we just stubbornly assume that you build broad working class support by doubling down on economic redistribution and you avoid social issues. So they put the social issue off to the side here anyway. Right. Or in the famous words of one of the authors of this study, Dustin Guastella, we need a class war, not a culture war. And, of course, he said that on the day that George Floyd was murdered. And one of these movements that had nothing to do with that economic populism rose up and went international and gripped the imagination of tens, if not hundreds of millions of people. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new 
ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So here are some of the big takeaways from the, the report. One, uh, that running on a jobs guarantee program can help Democratic candidates. Now, this is the only populist economic proposal that got any traction. Nothing else, single-payer health care, student loans, blah, 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 worked. But Minimum wage, $15 an hour. Minimum wage, $20 an hour. No. None of those... <laughs> Even this very limited study with all everything going for them, nothing worked except for jobs. Two, populist us versus them rhetoric appeals to working class voters. Three, running more non-elite working class candidates can help Democrats attract more working class voters, by which they mean teachers and construction workers, apparently. Candidates who use class-based populist messaging are particularly popular with blue-collar workers in purple states. Again and again in the study, they try to say that when candidates criticize the Democratic Party, even though they're running as Democrats, that plays well. So if you call the Democratic Party elitist, that plays well with voters. Yeah, I'm a Democrat, but these establishment Democrats, they're out of touch with regular people. Yeah. Well, those are the big, the big takeaways. But then as you read through the study, there are all these caveats that you realize these claims, which don't even sound that strong in the first place, right? Run construction workers who say they're going to create jobs and hate the elites. Already that sounds weak, but then you read through the study and you realize that there's so many caveats that even that is like a really weak conclusion. One thing that really gets to me is this us versus them, which is a, a, they make an issue they, of us versus them rhetoric that appeals to working class voters, regardless of partisan affiliation. And they call that populism. Well, Jason Stanley, who wrote a book on fascism a number of years ago, 
and said that that was the, the essence of fascism, how fascism works, the politics of us and them. Okay. And that, that should give one pause because, yeah, us versus them rhetoric appeals to working class voters. What they have done to say that this appeals to working class voters, regardless of partisan affiliation, this is a bit of a sleight of hand. Okay. Because they're lumping in messages that bash the political elite, that bash the millionaires. I mean, I think that if you really want to get some Republicans, you can say we we need policies that go after the millionaires like Soros and the Rothschilds. So what I'm trying to indicate here is, yeah, you got this us versus them orientation, but it kind of matters who the us is and who them is. And leaving it at millionaires, I mean, uh, that that harkens back to uh, Occupy and the 1% and the 99%. But this category is, is very loose and it, it can shade over into red-brown politics very easily. Yeah. Now, here's one of the sample populist messages that they had in the study that for people to respond to. Quote, Americans who work for a living are being betrayed by super-rich elites. Politicians need to listen more to working people. Working-class Americans need to come together and elect leaders who will fight for us all against corrupt millionaires. Like this kind of thing, I think you're right, like shades so quickly into a red-brown messaging. There's nothing inherently like progressive or socialist about this at all. Is the problem with American politics that you have elites who are like conspiring to rig the system for themselves? I mean, there's no critique of capitalism. There's no sense of like, let me give you like, they compare this economic populist message to an anti-populist message to see which is more, what plays better with voters. And here's the sample anti-populist message. It says, quote, the American people are being betrayed by unqualified political outsiders. Politicians need to listen more to the experts. Americans need to come together and elect leaders who will fight for us all against political extremists. I think that is like, like a parody of an anti-populist message. Yeah. You know, what yeah. policy is going to be like, we just need to follow the experts. It's like they, there was like a parody of a neoliberal technocrat being like, we don't need democracy, just obey experts. What about an anti-populist message who was like, the problem is capitalism. The problems are sy- systemic and institutional, and they don't have to do with like the conspiracies of elites and intellectuals. Yeah, but that wasn't even like tested as a message. Yeah, you're quite right. And what they call populist and not populist, I'm going to read you the two, two of them and see if you can pick up the differences because they're almost identical. Uh, this is on page 28 of the study. Soundbite number three is called not populist, but working people centered. And it goes like this. Americans who work for a living are being betrayed. Politicians need to listen more to Americans who work for a living. Working class Americans need to come together and elect leaders who will fight for us all. That's called not populist. As against number five, which is called economic populist. And it goes like this. Americans who work for a living are being betrayed by super rich elites. Politicians need to listen more to working class people. Working class Americans need to come together and elect leaders who will fight for us all against corrupt millionaires. <laughs> okay, see see if you can pick out the differences between those two yeah, That's a really good. It's like with those um, I spy puzzles, is that what they're called? 
Um, it was, yeah, it, yeah, was yeah. it just yeah. that the word super rich elites and millionaires was inserted into the second one? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> what does he win? It's a brand new car. Yeah, I mean, you, you got you got the nail on the head. Other than that, it was just work for a living versus working class people. I mean, but, you know, that's nothing. So, yeah. Why did their economic populist things do well and the not populist things not do well? Here, Here is, I think, fight for us all, fight for us all. Versus fight for us all against corrupt politicians. Fight for us all against corrupt millionaires. So basically, I I think that this can be chalked up to negativity. People who want to not only fight for not politicians who fight for us, but fight against people who are pissed off and ha- have a, an, an enemy they want to single out. That negativity is, is is attracting certain people. Whereas what's essentially the same message without the, the specificity of, of who the target is, that that's not doing so well. To call one populist and the other not populist, yeah. I, I don't know. And apparently there was no messaging like we need to protect the rule of law or democracy from fascism or that was just not apparently politically relevant, even though that seems to be what motivates Democrats to go come out and vote. Yeah. And apart from this thing about working class Americans of all races and backgrounds need to come together and the immigration question, I mean, race is like all but absent from this survey. Racial issues are all but absent. I mean, you got people who, you know, they're identified as imaginary Latino candidate, imaginary black candidate, imaginary white candidate. But what they've tried to do is to take the racial salience and import and context of so many things that they've just tried to wipe that out of existence and make it like we live in a colorblind society and people are choosing these deracinated you know, options and questions and so forth. They're they're implementing their their own vision of American politics where it's not race centric. Yeah, it's it's very very weird. Yeah, to to do this, I think that if if they were to have done that, they they wouldn't have gotten any anything like they wanted because people would have responded to what is really driving American politics, which is racism on the one hand and the, the fight against racism on the other. Um, I, I, I look at this and, and, you know, you, they go, okay, well, we're not talking about woke. Okay. You're not talking about woke, but you're not talking about a lot of things that are racially coded and and so forth. It really looks like it was designed to tease out some kind of results that could accord with their line and the stark facts, like the kind that Alan Abramowitz hits people with those sharp clear trends and facts they're just like occluded as i was reading through the report i kept finding things that seemed to cast the study's initial confidence in a much less confident light realizing that a lot of these strategies that they're pitching are morally mostly relevant to swing districts that they're not like broad strategies for like all candidates they have a lot of caveats, you know, saying that like local conditions might significantly change our recommendations. Since the study is just focused on swing voters, there isn't a discussion of the relative merits of mobilizing the Democratic base versus persuading swing voters, right? So if you are ba- you're trying to appeal to white working class voters and you're doing that by doing things that might alienate an urban Democratic base, you're um, 
suppressing your own base's voter turnout. So this none, that reality isn't taken into consideration at all. Um, I mean, that's a real problem. I mean, that was a problem for Fetterman. I mean, he still won, you know, for various reasons. But you know, Fetterman didn't campaign in in Philadelphia at all during the primary for his Pennsylvania Senate seat. He just focused on the rural or sub- suburban voters. Um, so that's a real thing that comes up. Yeah, I mean, and they do mention it. To be fair, they do mention it that not mentioning the social issues does not play well in the cities. They've got some language like that. But for people who are like concerned with messaging and eking out one percentage point more Democratic vote, two percentage points more Democratic vote, for people who are concerned about moving things at the margins to a slight degree, you would think that they would take into account the slight degree to which you talk about this one thing and not the other thing and it loses your support in the cities. Well, how much support, how much does that weigh against the things that you're emphasizing? There's no real numbers to, to back that up. It's just on the one hand, this plays well, you know, in the rural areas with the non-college population. It doesn't play well in the cities. Yeah, okay, but how big is the one effect? How big is the other effect? They, they don't tell us. Yeah. He, one of the interesting things that does come up in the study is they suggest that running a progressive line on immigration or guns will be bad for populist candidates. They quote, immigration is highly salient for registered voters. Registered voters were 19 percentage points more favorable toward candidates who campaigned on modernizing border infrastructure compared to those who prioritized decriminalizing immigration. The moderate immigration policy had twice the persuasive effect as the most popular economic policy, which were tax credits for small businesses to create jobs. Uh, so this seems to suggest that like running on border infrastructure would be better than running on jobs programs if you're trying to get these swing voters. They don't lead with, you know, they, that's not the conclusion of the study. They don't say we need to run on border infrastructure. But I mean, if your methodology is just to like survey voters and see what plays well, and to base your politics on that, then it seems like you should run on modernizing border infrastructure and not a job guarantee program. Yeah. I mean, the context of this is the Republicans are going to be running on build the wall, ending birthright citizenship, uh, all these things. Well, we, the Democrats, the loyal and not loyal and newly kind of loyal Democrats, we we can't, you know, out racist the racists. But do we fight them or do we like mumble, you know, in our soup while they're talking about their stuff? And do we promote job guarantees and then say, well, we need to modernize border infrastructure so that the media gets bored and walks away? I, I think I think that that's the real effect is promote economic populism where you got a chance of doing well and downplay the, quote, social issues where you're going to get some swing voters to go against you. I think that's what what they're, they're going for. Yeah, I get it. Just the fact that, as they say, moderate immigration policy had twice the persuasive effect as the most popular economic policy seems to suggest that these social issues get you way more traction than these uh, so-called economic uh, policies. Oh yeah, you're 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 so right about that, right? Of course. It's like twice the persuasive effect. So their big conclusion, you know, blah blah blah, job program, which is like not even something people talk about. It's not even like you know a federal job guarantee. No one's running on that. No one's talking about that. that's like completely not in the political map right now. 
immigration policy you know, has twice the persuasive effect. I mean, just like they're throwing out these things that don't even like really register on the actual uh, battleground of politics. Yeah, I mean, and it's actually interesting that everybody, you know, your independents, your Republicans, your Democrats, everybody's like, yeah, you know, a jobs guarantee. Everybody's in favor of it, okay? But nobody runs on it, and it's not just the neoliberalism. It's the cause of that. Yeah, I mean, I think these, these, these people are aware that they are pushing back against the, the main issues and the main divides in American body politic. So they're, I, I don't think they're, they're even trying to say, here's the, the kind of message that would be the most popular. It's like, here's the kind of way that we can, within the confines of mainstream politics, maneuver our kind of left economic po- uh, populism. But you're, you're absolutely right. You, you look at, at their charts and they make a big deal about a two, three, four percentage point difference between this and that and this and that. And as against that, the, the gap in terms of immigration policy, that's like those are in the margins of their page, you know, big, big differences. You're absolutely right. It really does leap out at you how much more people respond to and the sharp divisions of opinion when you get to something like immigration versus $15 minimum wage, $20 minimum wage. It just it, it didn't move a lot of people, these, these, these differences that they were trying to tease out there. We were talking before we started recording, Andrew, and you were bringing up just how, in general, most of the their findings are in this tiny range for like forty six to fifty two percent or something. Yeah, let me let me try to explain first of all what that's all about. So they 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 got these imaginary candidates running for office, and they got imaginary demographic characteristics: male, female, white, black, Latino. Uh, occupational background. They got this policy positions. They got uh, 20,000 different possibilities. And they asked people, two of these randomly selected imaginary candidates, you know, who do you favor, this one or that one, this one or that one. So you got a complex of things and you got a different message, this and that. And they're, they're able to say what people prefer, what kind of occupations they prefer in candidates, what kind of race, what kind of gender, uh, what kind of uh, economic message, what kind of social message, what kind of rhetoric, populist, not populist. Now, since it's a head-to-head matchup between two candidates, if it was a coin flip, all the results would be at 50%. And like you were saying, Brendan, for almost everything except for immigration, the results that they're getting are in almost almost every case, they're well between 40 and 60%. Okay, so nobody's getting less than 40% support in this imaginary setup. Nobody's getting more than 60 in this imaginary setup. And most of the time, this, this complex of factors is getting 53% support. The other one's getting 47% support. Really minor differences. And they're making huge deals about very, very minor differences. Now, why are they getting such minor differences? And I think it's because, you know, over 70% of the sample is actually people who almost always vote Democratic or almost always vote Republican. The, the true independence is only 28% of their sample. So the, the actual swing vote is very, very small, even in this study that is oriented to the swing vote. So, you know, they're really trying to move things at the margins here. The problem is all of the results are just so marginal. 
they make a big deal. Oh, this message does great, and this one doesn't. Yeah, well, that one does great gets chosen by 53%. The other one gets chosen by 47%. Plus, since you're only dealing with 1,600 people, 1,650 people in the survey total, you get a margin of error. And the margin of error is big relative to the difference between this 53 and this 47%. The margin of error swamps the, uh, the, the point estimates. So in, in the whole population, it could be the opposite. Probably, you know, it's not, but that's within the margin of error, right? So you really can't uh, conclude too much from this. Very, very wide error bars relative to the differences that they're trying to highlight. Yeah, but just to make a point of it, although this is just very weak in its conclusions, the study is not presented that way. And the article in Jacobin that talked about the study and other media about it is sort of presented as, look, this is the way to do, win back the white working class. Look, we got a strategy. We have a study that proves it. Because who is going to, you know, who's going to read through a like 120 page study and like look at all the details. They're just going to read the talking points and be done with it. So, I mean, one of my big questions after reading this was, is there anything that distinguishes this study from the sort of research that political parties do all the time to test messaging? Like, is it just that socialists or people who call themselves socialists did the research? Uh, and if they report the same stuff that other conservatives do or the mainstream Democratic survey people do, does it matter? I would think doesn't really matter. It just, just seems like a really irrelevant quest they've gone on here. Well, it's relevant to them. I mean, if you've got this economic populist line and they used to believe – that there was some objectivity to it. They used to believe that uh, neoliberalism had smashed the working class. They used to believe that this is the reason that Trump was getting working class support, meaning white, non-college educated workers. The facts are, you know, neoliberalism did not pummel the working class. And the reason that the Trump base loves Trump has to do with racism and misogyny and not this economic populism. But you got... uh, whole cohort of people who became radicalized because of Occupy. And these are people who like had student loans who couldn't, they couldn't be repaid, you know? And so they were like pulled down in, into the working class from, from the upper middle class and, 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 and so forth. And they really believed that like they were a mass movement and the beginnings of a mass movement. And the way that they try to uh, understand the majoritarian status or potential majoritarian status was, ah, there's the 1%, that's them, and then the us is 99%. Well, yeah, you just claim 99% of the population. So they don't look at the actual divisions, racial divisions, and then the division between the, the upper middle class and the, the, the working class. So they really thought that they were onto something at one point, you know, you get the 2016 Bernie campaign and then the whole thing just went bust. And, and so what they're doing is rather than rethink anything, they're like, how do we make peace with the status quo? I mean, I I think all these people are going to be employed in research institutions, you know, or advisors to progressive political campaigns in, in the near future. I think they're seeing the handwriting on the wall. There's really no future for the more socialist elements of their politics. So here, let's show that we know how to do this stuff. And yeah, they've done research like any of these other people, but oriented to saving what they can salvage from a series of 
misunderstandings and, and, and defeats. You know, often when we, I've read through Jacobin stuff that we were going to talk about, I got kind of worked up emotionally, kind of feel like excited to like uh, critique and dismantle a, a Jacobin argument. But I just found this study just sad. I found it depressing to work on. I mean, it's not like they're admitting defeat, but it just, it's just, <laughs> it's just sad. Yeah, we haven't talked about this, but that was exactly my reaction. It was exactly my reaction. It was sort of like, God, this is what what what's come to all of all of this effort, all of this thinking and talking and movement building, and even though I've been critical of it the whole time they've been doing it, to see it come to this is just sad. Yeah, you know, comparing these like idiotic little messages. These idiotic little sound bites that are just sound so stupid. Like they were written by a, a chat GPT wrote the Americans who work for a living are being betrayed by super rich elites. Like, oh my God, these are the people that are like claiming the mantle of, of Marx. And this is what came of the Bernie revolution. And like, this is where all these people are at now. It's just. It is very sad. And what, what bothers me above all about the whole thing more than anything, is my understanding of, of politics is revolutionary. It's about transforming reality. I'm sure yours is as well. And there is no hint of transformation of reality in anything in this study. It is, you know, that phrase, uh, you meet people where they're at. This is meeting people where they're at with a vengeance. What sound by best links up to people who are just reading this on a computer screen and immediate emotional reaction. Let's let's measure people where they're at. Don't introduce them to anything else. Just accept their understanding or total lack of understanding of how politics works and what the divides are. And that's a huge problem in America. We're no longer going to try to change anything. What we're going to do is message. We're going to become marketers. And what we're going to do is feed into this game where all the decisions are going to be nail biters won by moving one percentage point or two percentage points of, of the voting public, giving up on mobilizing masses of people, either in elections or in not electoral politics, like you mentioned, of course, the Black Lives Matter uprising, Me Too, and so forth. These re really important and transformational and life-changing for individuals, movements and events, it's just, no, that's not what we're about. We're, we're about moving a couple of percentage points of swing votes. Yeah. It's, it's really pathetic. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, for, 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 for decades now, I've gone to these left conferences, you know, like uh, the Socialist Scholars Conference or the Left Forum. And increasingly, I got a sense of like, these people have got like no ideas, uh, no theory, and when they talk about theory, they talk about ideas, it's all marketing. This is just blatantly a matter of marketing. I mean, what happened to the Green New Deal? What happened to single-payer health care? These were like the flags that these people were like planting on the barricades a couple of years ago. Yeah. Student student debt forgiveness. Yeah. I mean, these were like the the things that were going to transform American society and, and the, everyone was going to get behind and they're just completely abandoned. They've just given up on on all of that. It's just remarkable. I mean, they don't come out and say, look, we gave up and this is all we can do now. This is all we have left to fight for. They don't say that, but that's, they sound all 
confident, but that's how it reads to me is like, all right, well, we're giving up on all of the things we said we were fighting for. And this is what we have left. I, I think that's correct. Like I said, I think that these people are going to wind up in, in think tanks and as strategists and advisors to basic democratic campaigns and stuff. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies.